Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today, we hear all about the history of special forces combat divers. Now, if this is a topic that interests you, then please also check out our recent episode on the history of the SBS, the Special Boat Service. But today we're looking at one specific aspect of the capability of maritime special forces, those courageous individuals who make their home not just on the water, but under it. Many jobs can be classed as dangerous, but being a military special forces diver has to be close to the top of the list. They are an elite within an elite, with their very own unique training and equipment. It's a story that takes us from covert operations in the Second World War through Soviet Spetsnaz divers working in Swedish territorial waters during the Cold War right up to the present day in the war in Ukraine. To find out more, I spoke with Mike Wellam, author of a recent book, An Illustrated History of Combat Divers. As a former Royal Marines commando and subsequently a specialist commercial diver and diving consultant, he certainly knows what he's talking about. For a man so immersed in his underwater subject, I have to admit I was slightly surprised that he was dry when I met him. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him. Here is the hugely experienced and surprisingly dry Mike. Mike, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Yeah, uh, thank you for asking me, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, just off microphone, you were just telling me how awkward it was to write your book on combat divers. Why don't you explain what the problem was? Well, uh, when I was asked to uh, put this together, uh, I sort of sat down and we were in a thing called a pandemic. Uh, was, uh, it was quite good, actually, because it gave me a lot to do. But, of course, people I needed to contact weren't in offices. They were all at home and all the rest of it. But that progressed. That was uh, okay, and uh, it did extend the time it took to write it. Uh, but uh, the units that I was involved with, uh, speaking to people, then I go back to communicate with them again, and they say, sorry, person's operational. Uh, oh, right, okay. Uh, of course, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. Uh, and all the world uh, put all their uh, special forces, shall we say, uh, on some sort of alert. You know, were, were, you know, who was 
going to happen and uh, where would it happen and uh, how would it expand and all the other things that go with it. So this caused a little bit of uh, uh, confusion. Um, you, you had no one to well, talk to. <laughs> yes, I did, because the, you, but you were talking to different people uh, who are not on the, the front line, as it were. Uh, photographs, we had uh, lots of uh, countries, uh, NATO countries, that offered photographs. I actually got the photographs uh, uh, through, and then we just, uh, with the publishers, we got this thing saying, sorry, you can't use any of them. <laughs> oh, the, the challenges of, uh, of writing books about special forces. Yes. Very difficult indeed. Let's talk about talk about the origins of frogmen and, um, and, and special forces diving. Where do we need to look to find those? Uh, it, it, it really started in the Second World War, uh, and it started in Gibraltar. Uh, what had happened, uh, a company called C.B. Gorman uh, had uh, produced this amphibian Mark I, uh, which was a closed-circuit breathing apparatus to go underwater, uh, and the British weren't interested. You know, our divers used the heavy standard gear, uh, what if we don't want to mess around with that? You know, that's not real. The real diving, uh, and so the uh, CB Gormans went to Italy and set up a factory and started producing and developing this close circuit small unit, to, uh, which was ideal for anybody wanting to do covert work. Mm. So, it's something like a, it's, a, it's a cylinder of oxygen you strap to your back or have it on your waist. How did it actually work? Well, you, you, all it is, it really, it's a bag. Uh, and then you have a canister in there, which is full of granules to remove carbon dioxide. Oh. It's a circular thing. And you have an oxygen tank to top it up. Amazing, amazing. And before then, I mean, I'm assuming people were, it was lead boots and a pipe yes, up to the, the surface. Yes, standard gear, lead boots, all the heavy weighted gear, hand pump at the top or electric pump as they came in uh, to pump air down to them. And um, I, that's probably useful for inspecting the bottom of ships, but not really useful for kind of being mobile. Is you, that right? Well, you're not mobile. You're on the end of a hose and a communications cable, and you're relying on people up there to supply you with air. This way, you know, you, you're you're free swimming. Well, the Italians, you know, uh, inventive side of things, uh, uh, grabbed hold of this type of unit, <coughs> created their own, uh, and then uh, got a, a torpedo and said, well, we could put a man on, but put men on this and we could steer it and, and away we go. Yeah, and so on a torpedo, on not, a torpedo, in, a, not in, yeah. in a kind of submarine. They're literally sitting on it, are they? Sitting on it. Yeah, two, two people sitting on it. And so that's how that was born. Uh, they kept it very quiet. It's very, very secret. And they attacked... Uh, ships in Gibraltar. We had masses of ships in Gibraltar uh, supporting the North African campaign and the, the war it was going, and they would pass through there and then uh, forward on to the uh, towards the front areas. And the Italians sneaked in uh, with these uh, torpedoes, and they could detach the head, which was a warhead, and hang it under a ship. So they hung these things, these these uh, big warheads under ships. Amazing. And then, well, how, how did they hang them? Is there some kind of magnet or something attached? Well, yeah, to on them? a ship, they, they have a thing called a bilge keel. Yep. And, and it's bits that stick out on, on the bilge keel. 
So you clamp on one side and you've got it connected to your warhead and then you go the other side and then you just move your craft away and it just hangs there. Uh, so this is what they did. And, of course, they, they could drive away with their uh, human torpedoes and uh, and depart. And, and is that on, uh, the, the warhead, does that operate on a fuse? or oh, is it, It's a time is... fuse, a delayed time fuse. It allows them to get away and then all of a sudden they just go bang and everybody's looking and saying, well, how did that happen? Yeah. Uh, so they did a few of these and were very, very su- successful. Uh, and then the uh, the British had to do something, so they set up uh, the underwater working party uh, in Gibraltar, and it comprised of two men, an officer and uh, a leading uh, hand. Uh, they were going to be the diving party. Uh, neither of them had dived before. Uh, they could swim, but had never been down. Well, what equipment are going to be used? Well, the only thing that British could find at the time was the Davis uh, submarine escape apparatus, which is a big bag that sits on the front. Again, it's got the canister and a single hose and an oxygen cylinder. But it was it was really big and bulky. Uh, so they uh, scrounged these. If somebody didn't want them, you know, they managed to scrounge enough. I'm a bit worried they took them from a submarine when they're poor yes. people. Would... <laughs> well, yeah. And they, they didn't know what to do with them. They'd never used it before, never been trained in it. So they stuck a ladder down the wall in uh, in Gibraltar, climbed down and went under to see what happened. Wow. And, of course, you know, they had goggles, but there were no rubber suits. They were in swimming trunks and plimsolls. Yeah. And so that was the formation of the first unit. And they went out, dressed with that outfit, to search the bottom of the ships. And they were placed on duty 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But it did expand. You know, once it, it they realised what was happening, it, you know, there were people recruited. But, of course, they were all the odd bodies because it was hazardous duties. Nobody was told what it was going to be. Uh, because they didn't want the Germans to know what they were doing or the Italians to know what they were doing. So it was just this underwater working party, you know, a construction group going around. Uh, but that that was the first, uh, the, the very start of it. And it, it was- makes you realise just how, to, to go back to the kind of the, the um, origins of it, makes you realise just how dangerous it is to be underwater and to, um, and to operate underwater. We talk a little about, about the risks of that? I mean, what what dangers are these people putting themselves in? Well, they were breathing oxygen, and you can't use oxygen below 10 metres. So you're on a ship, and you go down, and uh, you can swim about. Uh, it's depth gauge. Uh, I don't know that they had depth gauges. I haven't seen anything that records that they had a depth gauge. They would just go down the bottom of the ship because they didn't know. None of this had been looked at or examined. So they would work on a ship, so a fully laden uh, uh, ship with oil or whatever, cargo, uh, could be, you know, deep. So, yeah, they just went down. So that was the the danger. If they got oxygen toxicity, you know, Mm. that could kill them. And uh, in terms of depth, I mean, if you're going to get the bends, you're going to get oxygen, um, this problem. When when does the... um danger zone appear how deep is dangerous for 10 meters for for oxygen 
Yeah. You know, it's not very uh, thirty feet, and 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 you know, you don't go below that, uh, and that still applies today. Uh, that's why you know we talk about in modern times they have mixed gases, so they can mix it and dilute, but it's all done to tables which are verified, and that came through experiments. But yeah, these guys had to go in there. Uh, they were dealing with a mine. They didn't know anything about them. Uh, they tried to get them off because they wanted to have a look at them. So, you know, here they are levering it off with a knife, uh, taking it up, sticking it on this boat parked alongside the ship. And they were all, oh, yes, yeah, you know, looking at it and examining it. <laughs> it is a bomb. Any yes. time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's the way they went about it. And uh, I had long conversations with a chap called Sidney Knowles, who was in this in the very first set up uh, when they set this all up and he said we, we didn't know anything we did we, you know we didn't even comprehend that it might be dangerous because nobody knew uh and that's how they set about it and of course you've got cold uh they didn't have any protection on them there was severe cold and that can overtake you when you're in the water you suddenly become very very cold you shake and you lose control and suddenly you're you're out of it so there was enormous dangers. Mm. And to mitigate that now, and people dive in pairs, don't they, minimum? Yes, yeah, operate, well, you, you, yes, operationally and, and, and training-wise, you, you will be a pair connected mm. by uh, a line. But uh, in wartime, you know, it might be if, you're, if your other person has a problem and has to go away, you know, you carry on with the mission. So you could be on your own. But generally, yeah. people, it, it's today, it's managed completely different. Yeah. Communication is another interesting thing. Could you just tell people how how, how do you communicate underwater today? Uh, today, <clears throat> same as you did back then in many ways. Uh, yes, there are. If you've got a line coming down to you, I mean, if you're commercial diving today, you've got communications. So if you're in a river, you'll be talking to the people on the top. Right. If you're a police diver, you're talking to somebody on shore side, uh, and it, it's it's through a line, but there's a line. Okay, there's a line that attaches you, so it gives you very clear communications oh, yes, into your yeah. Into, yeah. Uh, and uh, when you're down depth, I mean, I've been down, uh, dived quite a lot at uh, 400 feet, mm. uh, and you know, apart from the Mickey Mouse voice through using uh, oxygen helium, uh, it, uh, you understand and you can communicate. But when you're in a closed circuit system, you don't want any lines. You, no. know, you don't want any cables or anything like this. You're free swimming, no bubbles. So nobody knows where you are, except when they're training and they carry a toa boy, little marker boy, so they know where you are. But operationally, you wouldn't have that. So you're. Let's just uh, pick that up just very briefly for those who don't understand. So, a closed circuit system, you're breathing out into the same place that you breathed in. From. Yes, into this they're bag. Yeah, so that allows you to be um, entirely invisible. Oh yes, yeah. So when when you're down there, they they can be anywhere, and you will never know, uh, which is what it's all about. And that's a you know, that's highly skilled uh, um, uh, craft. Uh, if, for example, in uh, the days of uh, Gibraltar, uh, they climbed down a ladder, went underwater, and you moved about down there. And then if you survive that, uh, you uh, you came back up and, right, you're a diver. 
And today, you know, it's six weeks and beyond, depending on your skills that you're going to do. Yeah. I've done a little bit of diving. I found it incredibly claustrophobic. Well, I, I can't answer that because I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just as as an observation. That as an observation. It can take, yeah. For someone who's um, some of you who's who's sent down below, and you can suddenly feel a bit panicky. Um, the communications. Let's go back to that. Yes. So I'm assuming they they communicated with hand signal if their visibility was good enough. Yeah, hand signals, or uh, if you got up close, taps. But you see, you're working with people who uh, have the same skill as you do. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you tend to know what's going on. Uh, if you've got the lead who's got the compass uh, and he needs to check a bearing, you know, he will just let his partner know he's coming up. Uh, he will show as little of himself as he can, uh, look at the target, set the compass and then go back down again. So um, compass is interesting. Let's talk about navigation underwater. How do you do that? Well, you've got a compass. You have a board. Uh, you have a board, and it's got a compass on there, and it's got a depth gauge uh, and, and a, a clock. You have, or you might have the watch on the individual, but you need to have that because you need to know you're not going too deep, or you need to know what your depth is because, as as an either you will know as you go deeper, uh, you incur penalties of time against decompression. So you need to know what depth you're at. And if it's in murky, not very nice water, uh, you know, you've got to manage that. And that's all part of the process and training. Uh, line of sight, mostly. Uh, you'll spot a target. Uh, you'll be on your head on the surface. You'll spot the target. You set the compass. And then you just gently go down and go in. And you can come up now and again. It depends on the conditions, water conditions. There's a little bit of a, a movement in the water. You can come up and you probably won't be seen. But if it's a mill pond, flat calm, like a lake, then you'd have to be very, very careful how you did it. Ah, so weather's important as well to be... Oh, uh, weather's incredible. important anyway. Uh, uh, you know, tides, currents, uh, all these things all have to be factored in. And also, if you're swimming, uh, you're coming in from the sea and there is a river and its water is coming out into the sea uh, because there's a difference in the buoyancy between uh, salt water and uh, natural water. You know, you could suddenly be swimming along and suddenly find yourself sort of going down. That's very interesting. Uh, it makes me think I live in Exeter and um, the the River X is a seriously deadly river. And where it meets um, the uh, the channel at Exmouth, I mean, you've got this, this wonderful meeting where the, the river's kind of brown and it's very silty yep, and sandy yep, and the yep. sea's very clear. So you've got major visibility problems. How do you how do you tell how far you've gone? So we've got your line of bearing. Say you want to swim towards a ship and you know it's, you know, 500 yards away or whatever. How do you how do you monitor how far you've swum? Swim kicks. Wow. And that's something you learn uh, because, you know, you, you don't have a – although they might do these days, they're coming out with all these gimmicks, you know, like you have on your wrist when you're going out walking and it tells you how far you've gone. Uh, they might get something. I, I don't know. I haven't heard of anything like that. No. But in the Second World War, it's a bit trickier, isn't it? Essentially, it's swim kicks. Mm. You know, and you estimate how far you're going to go. But the sea is a very, very, as you will well, probably well know, 
is a very strange master uh, because it, it doesn't always do what you think it it's going to do, and it can change all the time. It can vary. So yeah, essentially, how many times do you swim? You know, you, know, you, you, you use your fins to propel you along. Yeah, and I, I suppose um, diving near to land is particularly dangerous because you've got um, the added activity of the what, sort of the more um, violence of the tides and the waves and, and everything. Yeah. Well, it, yes, that's exactly right. You know, it does get, and of course, as you come in shallower, you, you don't want to break surface because if there is somebody out on that uh, beach that you're approaching. Uh, looking out with a pair of binoculars, you don't want to suddenly stick your head up so he can see you. You know, it's all uh, quiet and covert. Now, look, a lot of this stuff is done at night anyway. Right. So yeah, it's even, even more difficult. Let's talk about weaponry underwater. I was really um, surprised by this in your book. I thought it was fascinating. Tell me about the development of underwater weapons. Well, when, when I was in, heavily involved, you know, you tried to keep your weapon dry. Uh, now, uh, of course, they, they use them all the time. You've got factors, for example, if you've got a, a conventional rifle uh, and you come up out the water and you hold it level and then you decide to fire and you pull it, the bullet is going against water and it doesn't like doing that. So it can backfire on you. So it can be a, a major problem. And the thing you have to do is is you hold your weapon down so all the water drains out. But they are developing, uh, and I do go into that in de- some detail in the book, they're developing weapons that that doesn't happen. Uh, you know, it's the ammunition, and rather than going trying to do it on detail in, in discussion, it's, uh, it's, it's quite complex, but they are mastering that so that you can actually look up from underwater with your weapon and start firing it, and it, the bullet will go up and out and hit yeah. somebody. What about firing underwater? Is there anything that has been developed for that? Yeah, the the, the Russians are really into that. Uh, they they've developed weapons that can fire, but of course it's because it's going into uh, a water into water. The water will actually slow it the bullet down very quickly as well. Fairly quickly, yeah. So they're they're all now trying to get over that. How do we make it go further? But they can, they can fire them, but they're going to be pretty close to you, uh, you know, if if they do open fire, but it is possible. And the other thing is that they've uh, they've got this a handgun and it fires darts. Right. So it, it, it carries about six, six or eight darts and they can fire that. So you get you get hit by a dart rather than a bullet. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mm, that's extraordinary. You were talking at the beginning about people sitting on a torpedo. What about underwater propulsion for, for divers? Well, that's been uh, an interesting one. That, that's one been one of the difficulties uh, in doing the book and preparing it because the developers, manufacturers, and the military don't like talking about it yeah. because it, it is quite highly classified. Uh, in the book, I talk about a new uh, mini-sub that the Americans uh, have adopted, and the manufacturer happens to be a British manufacturer, and I was given information from the from the company, which I put into the draft document all about what he told me. Uh, and then uh, when I went back to contact him uh, for more information and an update, uh, he had left the company. Uh, and I was now speaking to the boss who said, you can't put any of that in. Because what I do is if I'm dealing with somebody, I, I write it. And I send it to them and I say, is this okay? Yeah. Because it's you know, a very touchy subject. <clears throat> so I'd sent this down and uh, the boss, speaking to the boss, and she can't say that. So I said, well, your man so-and-so, don't mention that. You can't do it. So he said, if you actually put that in a book and publish that, the CIA will be visiting you. <laughs> so I said... Yeah, okay, it's not going in the book. No, the, the perils of being a historian. Yeah. Dearie me. What, um, what can go in? And between the two of us, we put enough together to give a flavour of what, you know, what's going on. But it, it's you started off, um, you had the human torpedo started it. Then afterwards, you had little diver units, uh, little propulsion units. A diver could hold onto it and be towed along underwater. The biggest problem there was the batteries. Batteries didn't last very long, uh, but as battery uh, production and development has got better, so you know you can put these things into craft and they will go. But you've got uh, which we cover in the book, uh, where you can have two men and they lay on like a sled, a little torpedo-y shaped sled, and and they can tow them. They're, they're very very good, uh, and then you can go up to what, what wet submersibles. Uh, carrying up to six uh, divers, uh, and they will go from uh, generally from a submarine, uh, which carries a big chamber on the back of it, uh, and you launch from within that, and you go off to a target. Your divers do what they have to do. They come back, and then you go back out, meet the submarine, back in, lock in, and uh, and job done. So it, yeah, there's a lot of development going on on that. And also linking in with, you know, autonomous vehicles. Uh, that's where a lot of it's going now because they can go so far uh, and just go, but they're computer programmed. So you then have to work out, well, how do we tell it what to do without lifting it out and doing the computer? Yeah. 
I was fascinated by your chapter on animals as well, mammals. Tell me about um, sea lions and dolphins. Yeah, uh, that was uh, that was came in the, in my 1989 book, which was Combat Frogman. Uh, that was an interesting topic, and actually, the publisher didn't want to put it in there because he thought it was a bit uh, uh, of, of an awkward subject. But the thing is, these these things have been used, but the Americans used them initially to support diving operations uh, because you could train uh, a sea lion to go off and find an object and bring it back. And this is what the Americans did. They trained that and they experimented with whales and sea lions uh, and, as well as dolphins. And it, they were used in that context. So they were supporting divers, or if you've uh, had a, an object on the uh, seabed and you weren't sure where it was, you could, they, could, they, they managed to train these uh, animals to go down, find it, and then put a, a hooking device on it so they could pull it up. Right. So it, it, it got to that extent. Uh, but then, of course, uh, certain uh, people in the in the world uh, saw it as a, as a useful weapon. Hmm. Uh, and North Korea uh, certainly uh, used them, uh, and so do the Russians. Uh, although they might deny it, but they do. And, I mean, there's a lot of information uh, that was floating around in the press about killer dolphins being used by the Russians uh, in uh, in Odessa. Now, whether that is, you know, if you're looking for factual evidence, nobody's actually seen one and nobody that we know of has been killed by one. But they are uh, they are an option and they, they have... Uh, they have been used by nations, mm. generally nations that you you know they would tend to use that sort of a thing. Yeah, let's talk about some operations from combat um, combat dive divers. Um, I really enjoyed um, what you said about Sweden. I thought that was a very interesting interesting topic indeed. So Sweden in the nineteen eighties, what was going on? Okay, in the nineteen eighties, uh, Sweden came under the. Uh, the interest of uh, foreign forces, I'm going to say that, uh, submarines uh, were the, the main intruders and they were they were identified of coming in on, on their coastline very close. Uh, and then a number of uh, official watch watchmen noticed that there were people in the water, in water line. And he observed these, that his job was an observer, and he observed them, and they were dressed in diving outfits, and they were uh, putting uh, stakes in on the land, and, and there was a line going out to other divers further out. And that was sort of the first real inkling that, you know, what was going on here? Uh, they weren't Swedish, uh, and... They weren't sure who they were. And then this chap, they they realised this chap was up there looking at them with binoculars, but they carried on. And when they'd finished what they wanted to do, they just went back in the water and disappeared. And that was it. So the Swedish Navy then uh, went into action uh, to, to try and find out what was going on, looking, searching. Uh, but Sweden is a very strange coastline in, in respect that it's not, 
it's a flat bottom. There's a lot of rocky bits in there. So uh, it's difficult for sonar to pick up a, a submarine. Mm. Not impossible, but difficult. And so they knew something was going on, and then there were other sightings. But then a uh, Russian submarine ran aground just outside of uh, a major military port, and it was it was just stranded. And it hit the headlines. It was uh, uh, around the world. So at that point, the, uh, the the Swedes then sent their navy in and surrounded it because there were Russian tugs coming, racing across to try and... From St. Petersburg. Get rid of it or pull <laughs> it off or whatever. But it just sat there and uh, they had to wait uh, until it was able to, to come off. But it was there for a fair period of time. The Swedish, um, any no Swedish person was allowed on the boat. They could talk to the captain, uh, but they weren't allowed to go on. They certainly couldn't go inside, and they wanted to. Uh, they did uh, instrument measurements around it, which they were entitled to do, and they picked up radiation. Uh, and, in t- and it was uh, the, the military papers that were allowed out and uh, were made public said that the the, the radiation was a sort of military quality so that it was either had uh, nuclear torpedoes or something was on that boat that was nuclear but it was an old submarine so it wasn't a nuclear powered submarine and the other thing was they found um uh fastening points on the ship on the submarine uh and it was concluded that that's where uh, they clamped on mini subs uh, that were available at that time to the Russians. And so there was this um, uh, cat and mouse uh, activities going on with the Swedes trying to find the Russians who were surveying along the uh, Swedish coastline. Well, Sweden has uh, defences along that coastline, which are listening devices, and they have explosive devices that are controlled by an onshore command structure. Uh, and one of the listening devices uh, disappeared. And they put that down that these divers came in and cut the cables and took it away. Uh, So all that was going on. Uh, They were found on land again, and the Swedish army engaged them with weapons. But these uh, divers, they just managed to get into the water and, and disappear. So there's been a lot of activity, and that was in ninety, you know, during the 1980s, uh, and it hasn't gone away. Uh, they still uh, have sightings. You still get reports of them, but they're they're much lower key. They seem to manage them better now. Uh, but there are still sightings of submarines and activities going on. And in the Baltic, it's not just Sweden that this has happened to, is it? No, it's it, it's it's happened in Norway. Uh, and of course, in the last uh, couple of years, uh, we've seen an increase in activity uh, by uh, mysterious craft. Uh, they haven't managed uh, have managed to uh, identify them for factual evidence. Uh, and in actual fact, when they go into the fields, the uh, the Norwegians and indeed the Swedes, they depth charge what their sightings are but nothing has actually come to the surface. So they haven't actually 
made a kill unless it's remained down there. But in Norway, it's been particularly interesting in recent times with cables, underwater cables being cut and lengths of cable being removed. So uh, whilst you can get a, a, a trawler or any other ship, drag its cable and it could snag on these and rip them away, uh, the interesting bit really is well, it wouldn't have taken away sections of a cable. Uh, it you know it would have just dragged the whole lot completely away until it freed itself. Uh, so there are sections. The one in Norway from the mainland was a setup that was put there primarily to survey the uh, coastline along there uh, for fish population movement, uh, current tide, and, and lots of other scientific things. But of course, the military had its finger on the pulse in it as well, because these listening devices could pick up a submarine. Mm. Uh, and it was in an area where the Russians didn't like to be listened to when they were sneaking about. Uh, so there, there is no factual evidence, but it, it's the finger does point uh, at Russian intrusion. Uh, now, you know, these might not, they wouldn't have been diver because uh, the depth of water, but in the shallower waters, it certainly couldn't can be diver. You can lock out from a submarine and do any sorts of activities. So that's that one. And then they had another one that went out uh, from the uh, mainland, uh, a cable that went out to uh, one of the islands, and that was cut. Uh, and I'm trying to, I've tried to get information about that to, to find out, you know, now it's been repaired, what what happened. And of course, nobody will talk about it. Mm. So uh, generally, you can tell if it's a boat because boats have transponders on them. And, you know, you can follow them. So you can follow shipping the same as you can follow an aeroplane flying in the sky. Uh, so these, these boats, uh, they switch them off. You suddenly get tracking of them going along. They switch off, and then they uh, uh, switch on when they're passed. But what they did in that uh, little bit is difficult to tell, and that's what's happened with that um, with the pipeline case. Right. You know they, they they should be able to identify every single ship and boat that's moving around. Let's just talk, just explain about the pipeline in case people our, our listeners have not heard of it. Okay, it's a pipeline that was running from Russia and it was going down to uh, to Germany or, or down that way uh, for the transfer of gas. Uh, it wasn't operational at the time and uh, it suddenly uh, blew up in four places. Uh, uh, so all the gas escaped. Uh, and of course, uh, the Russians pointed the finger at, well, mainly the British uh, and anybody else that was in the area and uh but nobody actually knew but sweden went in uh with others uh because it was in their in their territorial area uh, and they'd done an investigation so we do know that they were explosive charges put on that pipeline but to actually point the finger at who did it is not not been done uh, there were ships operating in the area through this uh, identification system that weren't actually had didn't have their their system on, 
But whether they did anything or what they did, uh, nobody knows. Mm, well, it's all fascinating stuff. So there's lots of stuff going on, uh, and it continues to go on. You know, this is just tip of the iceberg, as it were. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Thank you very much indeed, Mike, for sharing us these wonderful stories. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, if you're interested in Special Forces, do check out that episode I mentioned at the beginning on the Special Boat Service, the SBS. That is recorded with a brilliant military historian, a very old friend of mine, Saul David, a man who can really tell a brilliant tale brilliantly. Also, please don't forget to check out our fantastic YouTube channel with our great videos showcasing the maritime world in an entirely new way. If you want to know, for example, how to get a 200-tonne ancient Egyptian granite obelisk into a ship, well, I guarantee that your feeling of self-worth will dramatically increase from such important knowledge. Do please check out our recent animation that shows how a curious little craft called the Cleopatra was built on the banks of the Nile to bring Cleopatra's needle back to London, where you can still see her today on the banks of the Thames. Please remember that this podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and Lloyd's Register Foundation. You can find the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk and please join. It's a wonderful way of meeting people and learning all about our maritime past. And the History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation, find at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and check out their fantastic latest project, Maritime Innovation in Miniature, filming the world's best ship models with the very latest camera equipment. The results are mind-blowing.